Thank you, musicians. Thank you all for being here today. We had such an exciting week. Such a great group of kids, too. I know parents, sometimes you like the relief, right, of dropping your kids off for three hours, leaving them with us. But they all, they all did really good, and praise, we praise the Lord for that. And we worked through and talked through, the idea was tracking down the one true God. And so that's the Mystery Island theme that we had with that. So each day was a different attribute of God. What is God like? What is God like? And that's the question that we're going to consider this morning and the remainder of the time that we have that I want you to consider as well. What is God? Who is God? Who is God in your mind? Because God is God. He is who he says he is, whether or not we think that. But often, do we not have wrong ideas about God? Do we not give him attributes that he says, no, that is not me? And why do we do that? We, we do that often because we live in a broken world. I think we can all agree on that, right? Something's wrong with this world. Something's wrong <laughs> with what's going on around us. And sometimes even what's going on in us. So we realize, okay, things are broken. And yet God, over and over and over in the scriptures, he declares and he tells us that he is both great and good. That God is both great and good. And if we boil it down, that's who our God is, right? We could, we could put his attributes or his character under those two headings. And so that's what we're going to look at today. God is both great and God is good. A.W. Tozer had this saying or statement. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind, my mind, when I think about God is the most important thing about us. So we want to make sure that when we think about God, we're thinking about God according to how he has revealed himself. We're not going to be in just one passage today. We're actually going to be jumping through a lot of scripture passages. So I'm going to be reading them out loud. You don't have to turn to all of them if you don't want to, but maybe write them down or think or meditate. Because during this time, our goal, and even our goal for VBS, it's not to come here and entertain you or to give you enticing words. Our goal, even with VBS, we had a lot of fun. Our goal this morning is to look at God's word and to ask this question, what does God say about himself? And what do I think about this God? So God is great, and God is good. People will question often one or the other, right? Because you can have a great God, and he can have all this power and might, but maybe he's just not good, right? And some people will come to that conclusion because of the sin and suffering that we see in the world. Okay, yeah, God is great. I can see that. He, he made everything. He put things in, into place. And, and he has this tremendous power, but it seems like God's not doing anything about all the bad stuff going on, and so he must not be good. Or we look at God the other way. We say, God, he's a good God, a good and kind and loving God, but he's not great enough to do anything about all the bad that's going on. And so sometimes we'll take one or the other on, when it comes to God's character and who he is, and it really comes down to, a lot of times, the sin and suffering. 
But the Bible tells us very clearly that God is both good and he is great at the same time. And if you've been with us even the past few weeks, we've been looking in 2 Peter, and, and God tells us even there why he hasn't come and made everything right yet. It's, it's because he's long-suffering, he's patient with sinful people, and he wants them to come to a knowledge, a saving knowledge of him. And that's why he hasn't just, you know, breathed out his wrath on everyone. So actually, his long-suffering is part of his goodness that we often throw back in his face and say, God, you're not good. Yet God is good. He's without sin. But he's great. So we're going to start with this idea, God is great. And how do we know God is great? Well, this week we learned three reasons that God is great. It was the first three days. We saw that God, the first day, is creator. He's the only one. So that's why God is great. We saw, secondly, that he is almighty. That means he has all power, all knowledge, and is present everywhere. And thirdly, we can say God is great because he is the holy ruler. Those are the lessons that we looked at Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And that's what I want to look at with you today. And so we're going to start in Psalm 90, verse 2. When it comes to this idea, God is great, we're going to first look at that he is the great creator. He's the great creator. He's the one who made all and holds all and has no beginning and no end. He's the only one. Look at, if, if you would, you can turn your Bibles. If not, just listen, please. In Psalm 90, verse 2, in the scriptures says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So when it comes to our great God, the only one and true God, when did God begin? When did God come into existence? And the Bible answer is, he didn't. He has always existed from everlasting to everlasting. Now we are creatures of time, right? You were supposed to be here at 10.30 this morning for the service, right? And you knew that, and some of us tried to be on time, and I understand, we, we can't always make it. There's things called kids, and traffic, and roundabouts that aren't finished yet. So all of those reasons, sometimes we're not always on time, but we live life in time, right? And so our whole concept and perception really is time-based. But our God is actually outside of time, the one and true God. And we, we can't even comprehend that. We can kind of understand it. But I would put it to you this way. Do you really want a God that you can comprehend? If you can fit God into a box and say, this is my God, it's really not one worth, worth worshiping. So God is so far and high above. He is the only everlasting God. Psalm 102, verses 26 and 27, compares God and, and us. Talking about man, Psalm 102, verse 26 says, they shall perish, but thou, talking of God, shall endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. I don't know about you men, but one of the things I hate doing is shopping for clothing. And my wife will tell you, I still have t-shirts, I believe. She might have taken them out of my drawer already. They might be garage rags. But I don't know if you, I have t-shirts from high school still. 
that I kind of still fit into, right? They're still good, right? My favorite t-shirt from high school, some from college, and, and my wife will go look through my drawers and say, these are ratty, these are old, you're not supposed to wear these anymore. And, and in my mind, I'm like, I just want to save money. Well, I don't want to go through all the, the stress of trying to find another shirt that I like. I know I like this one, right? But yet the shirt... Men, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Our wives do that in love, though, just so you know. I want to make that very clear. But yet, it does wear out. And I always joke, she said, this has holes in it. I say, of course it does. How else would I get my hand and my arms and my head through it? But she's talking about a few more than those. And so Psalms here compares us as people, you know, that, that we live, we grow old, we die. But God is forever. And in the end of the book of the Bible, in Revelation 1, verse 8, Jesus, as God, he's speaking, God is, and he says this, I am Alpha and Omega, A to Z, on the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and was and is to come, the Almighty. That's who our great creator God is. And he's not only just the great, the one and only, in that he never changes. God never changes. He never has to change clothes. He never changes his his moral standard of who he is because all of that righteousness flows out of him. Malachi, one of the Old Testament prophets in chapter 3, verse 6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Those of you that are married may have come into a marriage relationship thinking this, I'm going to change that person, right? <laughs> and you go into that, and, uh, and how often does that really work? <laughs> you realize <laughs> that there's some things about people that that's who they are. But yet, in a lot of ways, we would still say people can change. Maybe you've had a really old friend you haven't seen in years and you see them decades later and you think, wow, I don't even recognize you because you have changed. But the great creator God does not change. His character is always the same. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. In other words, God doesn't change. He doesn't vary day to day what he thinks is right or wrong or who he is. So God is the creator, the one and only. He's the great creator who made everything. And the Bible tells us over and over, it says that creation, it really declares, it screams that there is a creator God. In other words, even without the Bible, man has no excuse to say God doesn't exist. You actually have to jump over that hurdle on purpose to say that there is no God. Because the Bible very clearly tells us, even the simple verses like this, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did he do it? Simply by speaking. He just spoke the world into existence. And then John 1 gives the same attributes to Jesus Christ himself. And we'll talk more of how Jesus is fully God and fully man. But John 1, verses 1 through 3 say, In the beginning was the Word, talking of Jesus Christ, 
and the word was God, and the word, or the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So God is great. He's the one and only creator. Secondly, God is great because he is the almighty God. This was day two. We learned three omnis. I like to think of it this way, omni, 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 like I'm Cookie Monster eating a circle O, right? I don't know if that helps you at all, but that's sometimes how I remember things. Omni, 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 and what are the three omnis? God is omnipresent. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient or all-knowing, and God is omnipotent or omnipotent, omnipotent, powerful. God is all-powerful. So we learn that our almighty God is present everywhere. He knows everything, and he's all-powerful. Let me ask you a question. Is that a God worth serving? Is that a God worth worshiping? One who made all, he knows all, he is everywhere, and he has all power. Listen to these verses. God is everywhere, all present, omnipresent. Second Chronicles 2, 6 says about the Lord, but who is able to build him a house? Seeing the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Who am I then that I should build him a house save only to burn sacrifices before him? Can you build a house and put God in it? That's the idea here. God, he, the heavens, it says even the heavens of heavens can't contain him. So God is not only outside of time, he's outside of creation. In other words, he existed before even material or the known universe even came into being because that's how great and powerful our God is. But how often do we do this? We try to take God and we say, God, you're going to fit my understanding or my idea. And we take this magnificent great God and what do we try to do? kind of like the genie in the bottle. We try to squeeze him and put him in this kind of box. God can only do this, or he's only this powerful, or he's not really good, or he's not good right now, or God doesn't know about me. The Bible says in all of those things, no, that's not the true God of the Bible. You can't take him and just shove him into a box and say that's who God is. He's everywhere. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? In other words, I'm close by. Can any hide himself in a secret place that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? So God reiterates over and over and over again. You can't hide. There's no place that you can go that I am not there. Because I am the God that is omnipresent. He's also the almighty God because he's omniscient or all-knowing. 1 John verse 3, verse 20 says this, If our heart condemns us, our God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. What is the human reaction, the default reaction of any of us when we have done something wrong? God has given every man a conscience, and so there's some knowledge of right and wrong, God has given us his word, which clearly states what is right and wrong as it flows out from God's character. But I think of even my four-year-old son, when he has done something wrong, what often happens? It's really hard to get him to look me right in the eye, right? 
when I'm trying to talk to him about what he's done. He, it diverts, right? Dad, I don't want to talk about this. I don't. What about Adam and Eve? You even think of in the garden when they had done the one rule that God gave them, right? It was just one rule, and they still couldn't keep it. We wouldn't be much different, would we? <laughs> and yet they did the one wrong thing. They ate of the tree because God said no. And they hid themselves, remember? Adam and Eve hid themselves. And so we think we can actually outrun this all-knowing God. We can hide our sin even, we think. And God says, no. I fill every place. I know every thought, every action, every heart. Notice the things that God knows from the smallest to the biggest. Matthew 10, 23 and Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. We have a, a finch feeder outside our front window, and we love to fill it and see all the goldfinches come and kind of fight over the food there and spread it all over the place. And just this week, I think we start seeing the baby goldfinches come. They're, they're smaller, at least, and aren't as brightly colored, so that's what we're assuming they are. And it's a lot of fun. But you know what? I have no idea how many finches have even come to my feeder alone. And yet God knows not every finch, but every single bird that's ever existed on the face of this planet. He knows where they are, how many they are, and, and whether they're alive or dead or any of those things. And get this, God even knows how many hairs are on your head. Now, some of you, that's a lot easier to count than others, right? But God knows the exact number of hairs on your head. So he knows even the very minute, but even the very great. Isaiah 49 or 46, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do my pleasure. God knows all of human history. He knows all of the world's history, not just the ancient, but yet what is to come. He knows the little sparrow, the little hairs. He knows all of history. Is that a God worth worshiping? Absolutely. Because our God is all-knowing. And here's what I want you to get on this, this last part of this idea. God knows you. He knows me. And it can be a very comforting thing. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me, Thou knowest my downsitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down. And thou art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, O Lord, but thou knowest it all together. God knows each and every one of us. I don't even know how many times I stood up and sat down this week. I don't even know how many times I did it even today. And yet God knows so God, our almighty God, he's all-present, he's all-knowing, and he's all-powerful. That means he can do whatever he pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3, But our God is in the heavens, he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Or the book of Daniel, Casey brought this up in Sunday school, how Daniel was one that sought after God, and in that, Daniel had a great impact on a king whom God changed in a great way, and that was King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the most powerful man at that time, really the ruler of the entire known world, King Nebuchadnezzar. Mighty, 
powerful man. We'd say he could do whatever he wants. And what did God show King Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 says, And at the end of, my, of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes unto heaven, and my understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? But don't we often want to do that? God, what are you doing? God, you have to bend to my will. And God says, that's not who I am. I'm a great God. I am all-powerful. Proverbs 19.21 says, there are many devices in a man's heart Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. So we can make our decisions, we can choose our life choices, but God is the ultimate, almighty God. So God is great. He is the creator. He is the almighty God. And thirdly, God is great because he is the holy ruler. What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be holy? It really means to be like God. But God is so far above in every way. He's holy. It really describes all of his attributes. He's set apart. There's nothing or no one like him. The prophet Isaiah experienced a vision, and we learned about this on day three with the kids. Isaiah 6, 3, and these are the angels talking to one another, really crying out to one another. Isaiah 6, 3, and one cried unto another in the heavenly throne room and said, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's no one like God. He is holy. He is set apart and distinct from everything else because he is the great holy ruler. Or Deuteronomy 32.4 says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. That's who the great holy ruler is. So you can have a great God, but if he's not loving, you wouldn't want to worship him, would you? But he is a perfect and just ruler. And because of that, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, verses 6 and 8, that this holy ruler will render to every man according to his deeds. And to them who by patience, continuance, and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. What is Paul saying there? He's saying if you boil down all of humanity, there's two types of people. That's, at the end of the day, there really are just two types of people. We can divide up all people into these because God does it. And he says there are those that are unrighteous, and there are those that are righteous. And a holy and just and good God cannot allow unrighteous people into his presence. That wouldn't be right. God allowing sin into heaven, it wouldn't be heaven. God allowing sin into his presence, a holy, just ruler can't do that. So the question comes, how do I become righteous? And that's a big question because the holy God has actually condemned all 
Romans 3.23, maybe you know some of these verses. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's me. That's you. That's all of humanity. Adam, Eve, they disobeyed God. The whole human race plunged into sin. And there is not one righteous, no, not one. So how do I stand? How do you and I, how could we possibly stand before a holy and just God? We often like to say, God, you're not good. But in reality, we have to look at ourselves and say, I'm not good. I don't measure up to what God's perfect standard is. And really, all the, the sin and, and destruction is really our fault. We like to point the finger at so many others, and yes, there have been wicked people throughout history. But at one, when it boils down to it, I know the world likes to say everyone's basically good, but the Bible tells us that's not true. So we have to take God at his word, as, as hard as it may be, and realize that if all are sinners, we're not basically good. We need help. We need a lot of help. So there's this holy ruler. And if God is going to be good, and overall, Psalm 89, 14 says, Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. I love those two words, mercy and truth. Because those show both sides of our great and good God. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. No, you can handle the truth because God graciously tells us the truth. The truth is we're all sinners. But there's mercy as well. There is mercy in our good God. So we've seen our great God, the greatness of our God. He is the great creator, the one and only. He is the almighty, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. He is the holy ruler. He does what is right and is just. That is a great God worth worshiping. But secondly, he is a good God. He is a good God. And I love this, how brightly it shines. We'll see two things under this idea of being a good God. He is a loving Savior, and he is a trustworthy rock. Our good God is a loving Savior and a trustworthy rock. A loving Savior, what does that mean? Well, we've already talked about humanity's problem, all of our problem, and that problem is sin. And it's a big problem because a holy and righteous God can't allow sin into his presence. So what do we need? We need a loving Savior. On day four, we learned about that loving Savior. We learned about Emmanuel. Emmanuel simply means God with us. God with us. He's not far off, but what did God do? He actually sent his son, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, born a little baby, and grew up, and Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law completely. He did nothing wrong because he was fully God and fully man. And scripture over and over tells us about this. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not an high priest, talking about Jesus, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, for he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. No sin. Or Hebrews 7.26 says, For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Jesus Christ, perfect. No sin with us. 
1 Peter 2.22 says, Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. 1 John 3.5, And ye know that he was manifested, or came in the flesh, he came to us, to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. 1 John 3.5. So God is good, and he's good in this way. He sent Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, to be the Savior of the world. To me, that is mind-blowing. It's amazing. You can't even fully describe it. Why would God do that? Did God have to do that? No. Did God have to make a way for us to be saved or rescued from the consequence of our sin? No. But he is a good God. He is faithful and true. John 14, 6 said, Jesus saith unto them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You want to get into heaven? You want to have a restored relationship, a right relationship with God? There is only one way. And Jesus Christ declared that. Because he's perfect, because he's God, because he is fully man, he and he alone can be the only way. And you may say, Pastor Phil, that's not what everyone else is saying. Well, then who do you take Jesus to be? Honestly, who do you take Jesus to be? Because if Jesus said these things, he's either a liar, he's just straight, bold-faced liar, and you can't call him a good prophet. A lot of people want to say, yeah, Jesus was just a good prophet. Well, you can't call him that because this is what he's saying. He's saying, I'm no sin and I'm the only way to the Father. You can't just call him a good person because good people don't lie. Well, the second option is he could be a lunatic. He could just be crazy, you know, off his rocker, and he just said all of these crazy things. And yet, as he's revealed in Scripture and all the people that have followed him, you say, no, Jesus, he's not a lunatic. So if he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, there's only one option left, and that is Lord. That he actually is who he says he is. And you know that Jesus proved that? How did he prove that? He died on a cross for our sins, He was put in a tomb, but three days later, if you read the resurrection account, it shows and it gives so many proofs of the empty tomb, the people that saw him, he rose from the dead. And I know that sounds crazy too, but it is the truth. It's something that's supernatural, and we've already seen how great our God is, and only he can raise someone from the dead. And so he is the loving Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. Romans 5, 8, we already saw that verse. The kids quoted this. But God commendeth or showed or demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God is good because he's the loving Savior. God is good because he is the trustworthy rock. How do we know that we can trust God? Well, God has revealed himself and he's given us something trustworthy. He's given us a book, really a lot of books, unlike any other book, 66 books or letters compiled by 40 different authors throughout thousands of years that all speak of one person, and that is God, and they all agree, and this book is sure. So how do we know that we can trust it? Well, even the Bible itself and people have, have shown, the apostles even, and Christ himself, 
Note these verses. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Or Christ's words himself, John 17, 17, it says, sanctify them, which means make holy, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. So we have a trustworthy word that allows us to know this good and trustworthy God. And throughout scripture, I love this, there are so many sweet promises given. Christ himself, John 14 Verse 16 and 17 says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. What is he saying? To those who believe in Christ, he has given us the Holy Spirit to live within us, to help us to live and glorify him. Or 2 Timothy 1.14, that good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit which dwelleth within us. The same Spirit to all who believe, Ephesians 4.30 says, to grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. So what is this talking about? God is great. God is good. God sent his Son Emmanuel, to be the Savior of the world. I want to close with these two verses and think of your response to these two verses. We are all born sinners, and we don't just magically or haphazardly or accidentally get saved or get rescued. It's purposeful. Look what John 1.12 says. It says this, but as many, that means whosoever really, as many as did what? As received him. Who's him talking about? Jesus that we just talked about. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. You want to be a child of God? It's only to those that receive him. And who are those people? The verse ends this way. Even to them that believe on his name. It's really as simple as that. It's the belief in what Jesus has done for me. He took my place on the cross. He died in my stead. And the Bible tells us it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Some of us think that life is kind of like that penny offering. We have two buckets full of pennies, and we'll put our good pennies in one bucket and our bad pennies in the other, and God is just kind of weigh it out and see how it works. That's not going to work. If we're all sinners and the standard is perfection before a holy God, the bad bucket, I'm afraid, I know in my own life, is always going to win. There's not enough good that we can do. That's why Jesus came. He came to be the perfect goodness for us. In other words, you don't want your bad works versus your good works. What you want is your bad works covered by the good works of Jesus, who did it all for you. And it's simple belief. John 3, 16, and we're done. For God, the great and good God, so loved the world. That's all people. That, he did something about it. He gave his only begotten son. That's Jesus Christ. That whosoever 
believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we close with this question. Who is God? Who is God in your mind? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Do you know God as both good and great? Do you know him as your creator? Do you know him as your savior? Today, even right now, could be the day, the time where you call and you ask God to be your savior. He says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved.